everyone. This is Chelsea Mesa. I'm a partner in SciFarts Labor and Employment Department in Los Angeles. And today I have the great pleasure of getting to sit down with someone who really is a legend in the L&E world, especially when it comes to what makes California the most unique and peculiar state in the country on L&E, labor and employment related issues. I mean, he is a man who needs no introduction, although I'm going to give him one, David Cadu. For those of you who are not yet familiar with him, he has been the inspiration and architect behind Seifarth's amazing California Peculiarities publications for more than two decades. He has been tireless in his efforts to bring to light the most vexing and peculiar aspects of California employment law. He has helped guide our clients and attorneys through these complex legal landscape, you know, the complex legal landscape in California, but with light and with humor, which is really hard to do. He now concentrates on the defense of class actions, alleging violations of our various wage and hour laws. A little bit of background on him. He has taught at Southwestern University School of Law in L.A. and also the University of Miami Law School in Coral Gables, Florida. And he served as an arbitrator on the employment law panel of the American Arbitration Association and also served successive terms as a law clerk to judges in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit and the D.C. Circuit. He's also a longtime member of the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers. So, David, thank you from the bottom of my heart for sitting down with me today. Good morning, Chelsea. Happy to be with you. Great. Before we dive into the meat of things and why we're here today, for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with the masterpiece that is CalPAX, our California Peculiarities book, can you give us a short intro of what it is we're talking about here? Well, the book now weighs in at maybe more than 350 pages, but it began as a slender monograph that was put together in about 2000. And it was written for the benefit of the firm's many labor and employment lawyers whose clients are based outside of California, but that happen to have operations within California. I came to California myself as a young lad in 1983, transferring from a Washington, D.C. office. And there, in my youth, I studied federal employment law, which was principally back in those days, National Labor Relations Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act, and we advised clients on how to comply with labor law and uh, wage and hour law. Then I came to California, where I discovered an entirely new environment. The courts here had just invented something called the breach of the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing in the employment context, and they were calling that a tort. So there was a lot of litigation in our California office. Meanwhile, back in Washington, D.C., with the Reagan administration deregulating, the work was drying up there. So I came west for some opportunity. And once I got here, I, I had to learn this thing called California labor law and employment law. We didn't have the Internet back then, but we did have something called the Daily Journal. And I, I got a home subscription. So every day when a new employment law case came out of the Daily Journal, I developed the habit of writing a memo to the troops, so to speak, trying to explain the latest innovation in California employment law. And then that led to sort of a collector's habit. The way you might collect stamps or coins or insects, you start to, you look at these very peculiar opinions and you start to categorize them. You put them in different buckets and you try to create some kind of organization. And so that was basically the impetus for the monograph. Now, in the 90s, we had in California what, what is called a balance of political power. We would sometimes have Republicans, sometimes Democratic administrations. Some of our legislators would be Republicans as well as Democrats. And so 
things did not really accelerate in the peculiarity front until maybe about 2000. And at that time, California reversed the reform that it made in 1998 when it had gotten rid of the eight-hour day, and it brought the eight-hour day back. And also in 2000, it brought in this notion of penalties for meal and rest break violations. And so it was about 2000 when we became systemized in terms of putting together something every year. So I think we all understand that California has always been a little bit of its own employment law animal. But how, I guess, why did the idea of publishing CalPEX as we know it, how did that first come about? Well, internally, people liked the monograph, and people thought, okay, you're marketing internally to our California to a labor and employment group, which is huge, the special capabilities of our California group, but maybe we ought to take this show on the road, so to speak, and let the broader world know about it. So someone gave me the idea, I forget who, of making a little booklet out of it. And so it began in about 2000. We know, obviously, there's a big difference between having a great idea, which this was, and turning it into a really great product. And this book has really always been great. The years I've been at Sidebar, I rely on it. I love it. Our clients love it. But I recognize it as a massive undertaking just to even update it every year. So I can't even wrap my mind around what it would have been like starting it from scratch. So what was that first creation process like? How many people were involved? How long did it take? Tell me all the drama. Well. It began as a lonely enterprise, but as people began to get interested in it, it wasn't too many years beyond that that we began something called the California Workplace Solutions Group, which was created in the backyard of Colleen Regan, one of our former partners, where and Dave Boffa came out from our Chicago office to help lead the effort. So those group of people have a passion for California law, and in our most recent edition, the 2021 edition, we have more than 120, that's one, two, zero, 120 contributors from the California Workplace Solutions Group and many other members of the Labor and Employment Group in California. And so what we try to do is assign to various teams of people, various parts of the book to bring their own expertise to bear and to share their own experiences and most importantly, just to read and try to correct the many mistakes that I've introduced into the text from time to time. And so every year it's gotten a little more organized. We've also had great administrative support from Sarah Giuliano and and others in the marketing team. So it's become systematized. We've made it a machine. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. That first version, did it turn out the way that you originally imagined it or was it greater than you expected? Well, I'll try to explain, it's much more of an evolutionary process. This is sort of like the slime that went from the ocean to the beach and uh, evolved over time. So there was no creation moment, so to speak. The monograph just sort of morphed into the book and each year got a little more complex. And each year there's a description of just the developments in the year just passed. And that description itself is quite massive because things have gotten much more dynamic during this century as we've morphed from what once was was an evenly balanced political state to one in which the only dispute really is between which of the various special interests is more powerful. My own experiment in this regard was to examine this issue about whether an individual person can be liable for sexual harassment. 
Under federal law, of course, only employers are liable for discrimination, including harassment. But in California, we developed this notion of supervisors being also individually liable for sexual harassment. But then came the push to make individual coworkers personally liable for sexual harassment. And you had this great classic contest. On the one hand, you had the plaintiff's bar lobby, which, of course, wants to be able to sue everyone. On the other hand, you had a very strong union interest where you have unions not wanting their rank-and-file co-workers subjected to personal liability. So that was the test. Which lobby is more powerful? Well, sure enough, in about 2005, California became the first state to make individuals, regardless of supervisory status, individually personally liable for sexual harassment. So there you have it. So in terms of memorable moments along the way over the last 20 years, what are some of the things that you remember and that were really interesting and special about the process of creating CalPAX and what you have experienced in your leadership role in the last 20 years? Well, visually, we've had some very interesting covers. One of the continuing motifs has been this notion of California being an island separated from the nation. And when I first came to California in 1983, I picked up a book that talked about Southern California. It was an introduction to Southern California written, I think, in the 1940s by a guy who called Southern California an island on the land. And the idea there was that Southern California is really quite unique, different from the rest of California. Well, it turns out that's pretty much true of California with respect to the rest of the nation, too, in terms of employment law. It's true that in recent years, New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts and Illinois have sort of also come up with their own peculiarities, but California remains in the pole position on that. So in the cover, we've emphasized this notion of being an island on the land. We've also examined from time to time the California flag, which progressives don't seem to realize this, but the California flag valorizes the white settlers who rebelled against their Mexican governors and decided to follow the example of Texas and create the Great Bear Revolt of 1847, which was soon followed by the Mexican-American War and the incorporation of California into the U.S. and California soon became a state thereafter in 1850. And so the star on our flag is a tribute to Texas. Thank you, Texas. And the grizzly bear is a tribute to the Great Bear Revolt. But the overall, what it emphasizes is how ornery in particular and peculiar California has been. And its independence has been accelerated, of course, in recent years when you've had Republican administrations and you've had a Democratic administration in Sacramento. And so California has gone its own way on many, many issues, immigration being a very prominent example. And so people out there in the hinterlands who understand labor and employment law generally, general counsel, human resources professionals, et cetera, who have a good understanding of labor and employment law generally, are almost always surprised when they run across a California situation and they see that California is a state where we do things differently. Yeah, that's certainly an understatement. David, thanks to CalPAX, we have a multi-award winning blog. We obviously have this podcast that we're doing. We've inspired other PECs around the country from some of our other colleagues and a host of other large-scale projects that we have undertaken that we probably wouldn't have told had we not had your 
aim high inspiration that we've really been inspired by. Things like our Leaves Boot Camp and, you know, this current national handbook and addenda project that we're working on, these really large scale things. What do you think is next for Calpex? What, what kind of things do you think are on the horizon for it? Well, in the firm, we have several core values, and one of them is teamwork. And it's been very gratifying, as we've seen Calpex develop, to see, first of all, the idea of making this a, a weekly blog, which once seemed to be a very audacious and ambitious project. And the credit for making the suggestion goes to our former partner, Brandon McKelvey, who said, well, why can't we do a blog? I see other people doing blogs. Well, we certainly had the content available for a blog, but did we have the inspiration and the talent and the motivation to do that? And it's been very good to see a group of people, Colby Turner, uh, Mike Wallander, Elizabeth Levy, Jonathan Brophy, and of course, the inimitable and indispensable Chelsea Mesa join as a team of editors for Calpex. And then we have, as I mentioned before, we have a very, very deep bench of talent with respect to California labor and employment law. Over 120 people contributing to the current volume. And blogs are important, but they're not monumentally difficult. And I think it's been a good experience for many of our associates to create some visibility when when they're asked either to write something on a perennial subject like, you know, meal and rest pay or things like that, or to write on some recent California development. So as you pointed out, we have had some success in getting some acclaim for the CalPEX blog, and the CalPEX may or may not have been an inspiration for other peculiarity projects that have gone on elsewhere in the firm. And I think it just highlights the fact that different jurisdictions, and it's not just the state of California anymore, it's also California counties and California municipalities. Every politician feels the need to create some special employer requirement that makes that politician a hero to the working class. Therefore, there's a need for employers across jurisdictions to be aware of these laws, and that creates a need for us to be helpful in that regard. So I just I expect to see more of the same in terms of broadening the platform and keeping employers informed as to how they keep out of trouble. So it is unfortunately my understanding that this is your last year leading the California Peculiarities Publication team, but how does it feel leaving it behind? Well, I have been a parent, so the feeling is familiar to me. You know, the kid hits the age of 20 or so, and it's time to let go and to let the child go out into the world on his or her own. And I feel that there's a good foundation laid there, and the project will be in very good hands. So I, I feel good about letting it go. And so in terms of takeaways and final thoughts, what do you want people to know about California Peculiarities, the publication in general? What do you want to leave us with your, your final thoughts? Well, I mean, to repeat, it's written with a particular audience in mind. It is not meant to be an objective survey of the law. It's not meant to give both sides of every argument. We fully recognize there are many good reasons for many of these laws and that the bad consequences of many of these laws were not necessarily intended by the people who wrote them. Our audience are people that want to do the right thing, that believe in providing employees with, with dignity and respect, 
who believe in obeying the law, who are reasonable people, but who are people who have been used to what the law is elsewhere and don't realize how different California has been, how beholden California is to certain special interests, how unusual California laws can be. And we just want to arm those people, raise their consciousness, so to speak, about how to handle California problems. You can't assume that California does things the way that happen elsewhere. Wow. Well, David, I have to tell you, having this conversation with you has been an absolute pleasure. And I know that a lot of people are going to listen to it and be really inspired and interested in, in your perspective on this book, because it really is incredible. So on behalf of myself and our partners and colleagues and our clients, I want to say just a very sincere thank you that you were willing to have this chat and to do all the great work that you have done on this very important book. And I've really enjoyed getting to hear your thoughts here. So thank you very much. Happy to be here, Chelsea. Enjoyed the conversation.